Hey everybody, it's Justin Shackle welcoming you into Towing the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. It's episode 9, David and James Smythe are here, and David, there is a lot to cover here. We're recording this late Monday afternoon, the CBA expiration's coming up, big name free agents are inking new deals before the CBA expires, and oh yeah, we have a, we have a Cy Young Award winner joining us again as well. Yes, we do. Hey, we're two for two, right? We got both leagues. Corbin Burns is our guest today, and he's a very thoughtful guy. Uh, I was fascinated with some of his answers, the new school and the old school, what he uses uh, to improve in terms of analytics and what he looks at after his starts. Very interesting, very thoughtful. Uh, You know, as far as the CBA goes, collective bargaining agreement, because of the deadlines, December the 1st, it's created a little bit of a frenzy here to get under the wire, so to speak. A lot of these deals uh, in, the, 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 you know, in the frenzy that we've, we've seen uh, it created an opportunity for some teams and some agents to maybe uh, try to take advantage of an artificial deadline. But even if the like lockout happens, uh, we're not missing any games yet. And Rob Manfred, the commissioner, mentioned that. Tony Clark, the leader of the Major League Baseball Players Association, mentioned it. Uh, until we get into February – and, the, and if the lockout's still going on then and the industry's shut down, then I would probably get worried. I'm not getting worried until then, rather, uh, when, you have a, when you have a chance to miss some games. Actually, the season impacted by it, or maybe the season starting late because of the lockout. That's when, that's when you start to worry a little bit more. Until that happens, I'm not as concerned, although the industry will be shut down if, if there is a lockout after December the 1st. Yeah, reason not to really worry here. Uh, Games aren't in jeopardy at this point, but teams are operating in a way. I guess this kind of blends into, you know, the opener segment that you that we like to do here at the very beginning. Teams are operating in a different way than many of us anticipated going into this. Uh, I don't think too many people predicted the the frenzy the the flurry of moves that we're seeing again we're recording late monday afternoon max scherzer flew off the board i was kind of gonna suggest hey guys maybe we should kind of hold off recording a a portion of this podcast to late monday night just to see how the chips fall with scherzer but he but he signs around lunchtime here on on a monday afternoon it kind of all went against though what what was being predicted a lot of people thought that teams were going to wait and see how a new cba looked and then do a lot of this damage, a lot of this action in early February. Yeah, it's true. And the thing you have to understand with collective bargaining agreements, in particular in Major League Baseball, is that it's not an us against them mentality. It's not the players versus the owners. It really is and always has been a three-headed battle. It's large markets versus small markets. And then the players are kind of the third party here. So internally you could have a battle between large and small markets. And that's why you're seeing to a certain extent, some of these big signings before the deadline, a lot of the large markets that have a lot of money are willing to spend it regardless of what the new rules or what the new compensation may look like compensation system may look like. So just another reminder that uh, this is a three headed battle. This is large market owners versus small market owners, maybe even a subset of middle market owners. It's almost a a pseudo four headed battle, but, you know, for argument's sake, it really is It is a, a three-headed battle in terms of you got to get those large market owners and small market owners to agree first before you can get a deal with the players. And that's something that uh, the players need to understand, the general public needs to understand, that sometimes it's an internal battle between the owners that holds things up in terms of getting a deal with the players. 
there's a lot to cover with a new CBA moving forward, possibly changes between the lines, future free agency. But here it's a unique situation for the current free agents in the middle of the storm, so to speak, with a new CBA here. And here we have Max Scherzer, right? I don't think we could go any further without getting David's thoughts on what Max Scherzer and the Mets have, have cooked up here. But James, three years, reportedly $130 million, a new average annual value uh, that blows the previous for a pitcher right out of the water. What kind of perspective can you put Scherzer's new deal in as we, uh, as we approach not only the CBA deadline, but for a guy approaching his forties as well, he sets the bar yet again. Yeah. It's uh, really incredible to have a three-year deal for a pitcher going into his age 37 season, making over 43 million a year. So the, the old average annual value mark was set by Garrett Cole uh, and Mike Trout with 36 million a year. So to really just shatter that and to go from f- about 43 to 36, it's almost a 20% increase from one deal to the next. And considering his age, uh, some of the injury uh, issues that he had towards the end of the season in the playoffs, uh, it seems like a very high risk. But at the same time, it's Max Scherzer. So he's a Cooperstown-bound pitcher. He is, as recently as this year, still one of the best pitchers in the game. And if you start to look at it, well, looking down the road, you know, what, what makes this deal pay off? Well, if you look at it by, like, dollars per war, um, that usually works out to about $8 million per win right now. So over the life of the deal... You could say, well, how many, you know, how much is he going to be worth during the three years? So you say 130 win, 130 million, 8 million a win, 15, 16 war over the three years. That sounds like a really tall task for most pitchers. But for him, if he pitches at his typical Max Scherzer level over the next three years, he'll easily exceed that. Great point, James. You know, in, in terms of uh, trying to assess value and on the player's side, and you know, you mentioned this collective bargaining agreement and shortly is this is the most important thing. Max Scherzer dragging up that a- average annual value into the mid 40s almost and it really leapfrogging the previous high, as James pointed out there, is the one kind of uh, tenet that the Players Association has talked about since Marvin Miller that the, true, the only true way to find out what the players are worth is in a free market like this and to have a guy like Max Scherzer out there to find out what the market will bear. And that has a direct impact on everybody else because Max Scherzer's annual, annual va- average annual value will have an impact on everybody below him and drag up the entire system. And that's, that's why the players have fought so hard for free agency over the years. That's why they want to protect it. That's why they've been so anti-salary cap, salary cap over the years as well. Because the only way to try, try to find your true value at some point in your career, even if you're 37 years old, like Max Scherzer, that you can have a, a record-breaking type of a deal that will impact the entire market. A rising tide lifts all boats. And exactly. I believe this is the second time that Max Scherzer has done this. That first contract that he had, the last one, I should say, with the Nationals also raised the, the AAV as well. Want to get to what this means for the Mets pitching staff. But I'm also curious as these reports were coming in and as I have actually have a lawnmower right outside my window, but nonetheless, um, what this particular deal means 
right now because to me it feels like it's right place right time for the Mets like I don't know if this deal actually happens if there isn't a CBA expiring if Max Scherzer isn't who he is the pitcher but also being on the executive subcommittee of the Players Association where you you owe it to a lot of people to take the deepest money bag right to to get that highest deal possible and perhaps maybe the Mets knew that as well I shouldn't say perhaps they knew that as well. That, that, that line of thinking had to be there as well. So David, do you think that this type of deal gets done in a year where a CBA isn't as highly discussed and on the line? Yeah, it seems like a perfect storm, right? I mean, you're, you're up against the deadline. It's creating this frenzy in the water, so to speak, where uh, some of the, the deep pocketed owners are, are going to make their moves uh, regardless of what, what, what's going to happen down the road. So yeah, it is. It is interesting to watch as this unfolds. Uh, to me, it, it's when you when you look at Max Scherzer. Of course, he understands the impact of this. He's very involved with the Players Association. He knows that that he's going to help everybody below him and drag the entire system up. You know, I'll give you an example. In 1999, I signed a one-year contract for the Yankees. That was the highest average annual value for a pitcher at that point was 12 million dollars. It was a big deal for me to be able to do that. I was part of the, the Players Association as well. Uh, I was willing to go year to year towards the end of my career in order to shoot for a higher average annual value. I believe it had a direct impact. 22 years later, Max Scherzer is, is, is now pushed the bar up to $43 million. It's a real win for the Players Association. It's a real win for Max Scherzer. And all of the other pitchers below him should send him a thank you note, should send him Max Scherzer a Christmas present this year because – he did everybody a favor that throws a baseball for a living. And it helps the Mets too. I mean, now Scherzer DeGrom, that's as good a one-two punch as you could possibly put together in Major League Baseball today. Is that right up there with, I don't want to factor the Braves three-headed monster in the equation because there's three pitchers right there. But in terms of one-two punch, there have been a ton of famous ones. I think top of the line is Johnson Schilling. But even on paper, is that right up there? with Randy Johnson, Kurt Schilling, or possibly does that even supersede that combo? Uh, we'll see. The proof is in the pudding, uh, you know, how they come through. You know, you, you're measured uh, by what you do in the postseason. First get your team to the postseason, then come through and pitch well. But just in terms of pure stuff, you know, we, we're, we got into this or are going to get into this with Corbin Burns a little bit about how he evaluates his starts. Uh, if you're looking for the best fastball, Slider combination between two right-handed pitchers. They're right there, back-to-back. DeGrom's fastball, maybe the best in the business, and this fastball-slider combination is devastating as anybody's. Max Scherzer might be second right behind him. So you've got two right-handed pitchers with the best sliders and the best fastball combinations going back-to-back. If you're a right-handed hitter facing the Mets next year, it's no fun. It's not going to be any fun at all. They're going to be breaking your bats. You're going to have some swords. You're going to have some swing and misses. They are as two of, 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 of pure stuff, right-handed pitchers, as good as anybody in the game right now. Right. We'll, I mean, this will be judged on how much we see of them, right? So, you know, Max going into his age 37 season, DeGrom only made 15 starts in 2021. If these guys make 50-plus starts, the Mets are going to win a ton of games and it's going to be a big success, right? Yeah, uh, being on the field 
certainly going to matter here. Uh, not to pour cold water over any of these deals here, but yeah, I mean, staying on the field was a factor, obviously, for Jacob DeGrom. We saw Max Scherzer kind of get burnt out uh, during the postseason last year. So fingers crossed, you hopefully, you know, you, you see them as uh, as being pillars to uh, a big season of success for this Mets squad based on their health. Again, if they're on the field, I think they're going to perform at a very, very uh, high level. But David, what are, during, during free agency, like what, what are the moments like leading up to that final decision? The negotiations are kind of over, the offers are there, and you're ready to pick. You are on the verge of knowing that you're about to make a decision. Are you alone? Are you, are you seeking any last minute advice from someone? What, what is it like? Because you've, you've gone through it multiple times when you were playing. Well, make no mistake about it. I mean, uh, Major League Baseball players have to jump through a couple of big hoops to get to this point where they're actual free agents, where they, they're they un, unencumbered free agents, so to speak, that they can choose where they want to work. Now, for a lot of these guys, sometimes there's there's a draft pick compensation attached to their free agency signing. So it's it's not unrestricted, so to speak, in some cases. But nonetheless, it's the best way to find out what you're worth after all those years in the minor leagues, all those years in the major leagues, contractual control, uh, you know, maybe even some manipulation of service time for some of these guys at the beginning of their careers. By the time you get to free agency, it is stressful. It's anxiety ridden. Uh, you may be at the top of your list. You, you, you want to go to a certain place geographically because that might be your hometown or where you prefer to live or raise your family. Sometimes that doesn't work out. Uh, is this my first go trip through free agency? Is this the first big contract I'm getting? Is this one that's going to impact my family. Hey, I can buy my mom and dad a house, that kind of thing. Or is this like Max Scherzer, where this is kind of the cherry on top of the cake, where you're, it's your second go round and uh, you're maximizing uh, exactly what your career earnings are. So maybe a little different perspective for Max Scherzer, but that first time through, Justin, boy, I, I can tell you what, you, you want to hear that you're wanted. You're really susceptible to the pitch of each individual team because you have no experience uh, you, you certainly are worried about the money, but there's other factors involved. Uh, it can be very stressful for a lot of players. You're anxious to get it over with. And there's a rhythm and a timing to these sorts of deals because organizations are weighing everything, the trade market, every free agent that's out there. Uh, you know, it, it takes some time for the market to take shape. And the, these, these organizations feed off of each other and read each other as they go along. So that's the toughest part for a player is understanding but there's a rhythm and a timing to these deals. And if it's not time to make a deal, there's nothing you can do to push it. And there's an added, added element to kind of put a rush on things this year in the next couple of days. The word around the industry is that teams are trying to get as much business done between now and the CBA expiration on Wednesday at 11.59 PM. But between the, you know, maybe the, the handshake agreement or, you know, the, the, the verbal agreement, whatever it is, taking physicals, dotting all the I's and crossing the T's of the contracts, making it official. It's going to take some time to get there. So that's why you're seeing a lot of business being done on a Sunday or a Monday. And again, we're recording this on a Monday afternoon. Is this business being done by the teams happening reluctantly? I mean, do you think that they would, they would rather have waited until the new CBA is figured out. But since some teams are being super aggressive right now, the Mets, right? The, you know, they're, the other teams are kind of forced to have to act before the deadline, not just the Mets. You have the Rangers as well. You have other teams. But do, do you believe there's anything to that? 
I think every individual team has a, has a different perspective. Uh, if you look at Texas, the Rangers, they have a very low payroll. They have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, budget to work with. And maybe they're thinking, you know what, we need to strike early here. Uh, we know what our payroll is going to be. Uh, we, can, we can deal with a luxury tax if it gets lowered or wherever that ends up. I know the Players Association wants it higher. The first offer from the owner's side was lower, so we don't know where the luxury tax is going to hit. But nonetheless, um, you know, if you're right below the luxury tax and you have some players that you need, like the Mets, you're going to blow right through it. There's no in-between here. And actually, uh, Steve Cohen of the Mets kind of admitted that. If, you know, you're not going to go over the luxury tax just by a little bit. That doesn't make sense. If you're going to go over the luxury tax, you're going to go over by a lot and blow it up and try to make hay so to speak, and get some really significant players. That's what they're doing with the Mets. Uh, the, their perspective is completely different than the Yankees at this point. The Mets are trying to – they have a new owner. They're, they're really uh, looking to, uh, to, to, uh, to make an impression. So, yeah, it, it's a real individualized market right now. The, the major markets are the ones that are kind of driving it right now, and, and the smaller and mid-markets are kind of sitting on the sidelines waiting to see what happens. John Daniels is – talked about no half measures to uh, borrow a line from breaking bad that if you're in for a penny in for a pound, if you're getting Marcus Simeon, if you're getting, you know, one free agent, you got a, you got a long way to go to rebuild your team. So you got to get other players like a John Gray and they're apparently not even done yet. I mean, you have, you have Simeon going to the Rangers. You have Gosman going to the blue Jays over the weekend. Like you mentioned, Gray, uh, Sandy Alcantara, Got an extension in Miami. A lot of action happening. And I think it was Joel Sherman. He had the amount. They, so he had 11 starting pitchers have signed for, a, you know, a combined $420 million-ish. This was before the Scherzer deal. So you have 12 starting pitchers now signed for, a, you know, com- combined around $550 million or so. A half a billion dollars here before this CBA expiration. Notice what is one, this? Yeah. One, excuse me, Justin. One, one thing, what, what it says, I think I'm anticipating your question is, as we mind meld here is, you know, uh, if you notice these deals that are going down right now before the deadline are teams that have had trouble getting free agents to take their money a little bit. The True. Mets kind of feel like they had to overspend to get Scherzer because the Dodgers were in play. Uh, he seemed to like the West Coast. It was going to be a hard sell. So you really had to, you had to step up if you're the Mets and overspend a little bit. I think the same with the Rangers. Uh, they have a long way to go down there. They have a lot of pieces they need. They needed to strike early and probably overpay a little bit for Simeon too, in terms of, of projections. And of course, Toronto as well. I mean, Toronto is a sleeping giant. Uh, the market is huge in Canada, but they've had trouble enticing players to go there. So once again, they saw an opportunity. So you think about the Mets, the Rangers, and the Blue Jays are all teams that, that needed to strike now. And even if they overpaid a little bit, it made sense for their organizations to make these moves. And they, they mean business. The Blue Jays mean business. They have a great young core. The Rangers are trying to turn it all the way around. They have a new ballpark down there. They have uh, tremendous resources to use. And, 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 uh, and then, of course, the Mets. The Mets are the Mets, right? The Mets have a new owner trying to make an impression. Uh, had an interesting week this week with, with Stephen Matz going somewhere and the owner kind of trashing the agent. Uh, that seems like a month ago or two months ago now because of, of what's happened since then. So each of these individual organizations had their own, their own dynamics going that pushed them to make these deals. 
Yes, I know that. I thought that Stephen Matz deal with the Cardinals was very good. Uh, you know, for four years, 44 million ish. I mean, ground ball pitcher. We talked about it with Adam Wainwright, sparkling defense behind him. You, you slide him in there behind Wainwright and Flaherty. So the, the drama with the Mets and Steve Cohen, notwithstanding, I thought that was a very shrewd, very wise move there by, by the Cardinals. And as we kind of tie this into Corbin Burns, look, the Brewers, they don't need really too much help from the outside when it comes to pitching, starting rotation, bullpen. They have a, a pitching powerhouse going on in Milwaukee right now. And we, uh, we were able to have the leader of that powerhouse of that group uh, on the podcast here today. And you could, you could make an argument even that, you know, Brandon Woodruff and, and Freddie Peralta are right there with Corbin Burns, but he had a brilliant outlier season. I think that's how I would, I would phrase it. Won the Cy Young award. Um, and, you know, he, he did it with some eye popping numbers that probably overtook the, the voting momentum away from, from conventional starting pitching performances. Like, we saw from from a guy like Zach Wheeler who finished second. Yeah, his star shined a little brighter than everybody else. Corbin Burns, in terms of the quality of his work, and we get caught up in you know innings or quantity of the work. Well, yet from a historical standpoint, the way his season started with fifty eight straight strikeouts and four starts without walking a batter, that's historical uh, a historical start to a season. Much less what he did the rest of the year and couple of really big games, too, towards the end of the year. He's part of a no-hitter. He had 10 consecutive strikeouts and one start in August. Just, you know, his star shined brighter than everybody else in terms of quality of his work. You know, Jay Jaffe does, uh, does work on uh, his Jaws system uh, in terms of his Hall of Fame ballots, uh, and, you know, and then the voting on the Hall of Fame. And he talks about the peak of your career. So, you know, you look at the longevity, you look at the – the counting numbers, you know, the, the, the quantity of your work, you look at the quality, the peak of your work, you know, Corbin Burns had the highest peaks this year of any pitcher in the big leagues in my, in my mind. 27 years of age. Again, the Cy Young award winner in the national league here in 2021, lower workload, but consistently dominant Corbin Burns of the Milwaukee Brewers, our guest here on toe the slab pitching with David Cohn. Corbin, thanks so much for coming on with us here. Congratulations, the 2021 National League Cy Young Award winner. A lot to talk about, a lot of different directions we can go, but I, I guess we could start with this frenzied and, and fast free agency period here. We're, we're recording on Monday afternoon, and we are seeing a boatload of signings, none bigger than Max Scherzer's big three-year deal here with the Mets. When you see such a, a fast-paced free agency period, what are what are players doing? Are they consuming as much of the the rumors and the reports like the rest of us are doing? We're constantly attached to our phones here. Yeah, I mean, me not so much, just because I'm not I'm not you know tied into free agency this year. Um, you know, as big as obviously some of the guys that are that are getting those deals this year, but um, yeah, it's definitely something different than we've what we've seen the past couple of years. Um, you know, the last couple off seasons has been pretty pretty slow paced, and guys are signing late into uh, into February and the start of spring training. So it's definitely a little bit different this year. Obviously, that's centered around the uh, you know the CBA coming to coming in here in the next few days. But uh, yeah, it's definitely exciting. Um, you got some teams out there spending a lot of money this year. Um, you know, some I think are going to wait till after this CBA gets figured out. But definitely an exciting time, especially for those guys that are going into free agency. You are are twenty seven years old. 
you're a first year arbitration eligible player here and you just received the highest honor at your position. You're, you're proven to be one of the game's best at what you do. What do you think players about to enter arbitration with this kind of momentum should be paying attention to when it comes to a new CBA? Yeah, I don't know. It's, um, you know, we've heard obviously the over the last couple of weeks, both sides of it. Um, obviously the PA trying to get guys paid sooner. Um, the MLB trying to, trying to find some ways to, um, you know, put stuff into different formulas, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's definitely a strange time going, I think going into our with, uh, with, the, with the CBA coming to an end. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of unknowns, a lot of things that we're not going to find out until um, the CBA is actually um, agreed on. So definitely a strange time um something that you know myself and really the guys that are playing right now haven't really gone through um so it's something that kind of wait and see um that's about all we can do right now um you know it's obviously exciting with all these free agent deals and stuff getting done right now but um yeah as far as what the what the team's thinking what's going to happen with with all this stuff and going through our but it's definitely one of those things that's kind of up in the air yeah corbin i just wanted to, to thank you for coming on our, our podcast here big fan of your work i've I worked a little bit with Fox and got a playoff uh, series uh, that you pitched in a couple of years back. So I've watched your progression and, you know, we have this draft. Uh, you have the, the, the number one pick potential on, on pitches. We were putting a pitcher together and you're, you're picking pitches, best fastball, best slider, best cutter. You, you're the best pitch in the league right now. If I'm drafting one and one, I'm picking your cut fastball. Is that something you picked up over the years? You always threw, is it, a four seam grip you're using on that cutter and you just think, let the grip do the work. Are you tweaking it a little bit like Mariano Rivera or give us a little insight on that devastating cut fastball you throw? Yeah. So I started throwing the cutter um, in the 2020 season. Um, obviously 2019 was, was strictly just four seam and, and it was awfully one of something that um, we struggled to not only command, but um, just get good results with it. So um, going into 2020, it was kind of one of those things that we had to find something different. Um, for me, it started as trying to throw two different sliders, um, one for a strike, one for the wipeout. And the more I threw the, you know, the harder, tighter slider, the more I could throw like a cutter and um, the more I could manipulate the grip on it. And so basically it's, it's a, just a different version of the four scene fastball that I threw in the past and just tweaking the grip on it, turning the baseball just slightly and, and um you know, just kind of letting the arm action, the hand position that I have, um, create that, create that cut. So it's really not something that I try to throw. It's kind of just a natural cutter. Um, and the more I've gotten used to it, the harder and harder I can throw it. And that's kind of the, you get the kind of the cutter we're seeing today. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I played with Mariano Rivera for several years and it took him a long time to master both sides of the plate with his cutter, the front door to right-handed batters or back door to lefties, uh, to be able to have that, that precision, you picked it up so quickly uh, is there is there a, a separate signal you have for the catcher for that, or is it just like a, a fastball that's going to cut, or do you have like how many how many signals, how many fingers do the catchers have to put down for your pitches? We we do have a sign for for the cutter and then for both sides of the plate, um, but it's it's similar to the fastball, um, just as far as you know calling pitches and then how we kind of kind of manage the game with it. Um, you know, a lot of people at profiles kind of as a as a slider. Um, but when, you know, when we're game planning and going after it, we, we, you know, we game plan it more as a, more as a fastball because we do have the slider and the curveball to go to for off speed pitches. So it's, uh, yeah. And as far as how I picked it up with command. So, um, so quickly, it was one of those things that I, I threw, threw a lot in the backyard after 2019 going into 2020, um, throwing into a net. So that's kind of, I got the feel for it. And then, um, you know, with the shutdown prior to the 2020 season, we had a lot of time playing catch in the backyard with the net and, and, and tinkering with it. Um, so it wasn't until the, I got the arm side um, command with it during that COVID um, shutdown. And then 
So a lot of time, a lot of throwing, um, and to, to, to get the command on it. Even 2020 was good, but it wasn't until this year that we were able to, you know, to pinpoint it on both sides of the plate. Corbin, what goes through your mind when you hear people around the game talk about your cutter as the best pound-for-pound pitch in the game? For me, it's just something that I've I've developed the last couple of years, and it's it's how I've how I got to get ahead and count and get guys out. Um, you know, a lot of people are like oh this and that with it, and for me, it's just it's another pitch that I have of you know of my five pitches. You know, I think when I'm throwing the curveball good, the curveball can be the the best pitch of the five. When I'm throwing the slider good, the slider can be the best pitch of the five. So I think I have you know five pitches that you know can go up against any pitch in the league, but um, you know it's always the cutter that stands out just because how much I throw it and you know how good a command I have with it. Yeah, Corbin, you know, I, I work with James Smythe and, and covering the Yankee games on the S Network. And, and, and of course, uh, Justin Shackles uh, works with the Yankees, too, and among other things. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about your cutter and your, 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 uh, your repertoire, but also we talk, too, uh, about your workload. And I know James has got some, got some uh, layers that he can peel back and, and some interesting observations on, on your season. But is there a buy-in? I mean, you guys are perceived to be sort of a really progressive organization. Council, your manager, one of the most progressive managers out there, one of the best, and certainly the front office as well, very analytical driven. Is, is, there, uh, is there a buy-in for you to go with sort of a, you know, a, a protect your workload or a six-man rotation or your pitch count? You only threw, I think, six times you had 100 pitches or more in, in your games this year. Is that something the council really sold you on early on? Is it something you think that really helped in terms of your workload and, and kind of pseudo six-man rotation? So I think that's something that we kind of had to adapt um, coming off the shortened season in 2020. Um, so going into 2021, we knew that health was going to be the priority. That's something that they they preached us in spring training. And um, I know all spring training, the idea of a six-man rotation was kind of kicked around. Um, you know, they just didn't know if it was going to stick. And uh, once we got through spring and realized that we had, you know, six guys that were healthy and, and could, could perform at a good level um, in the rotation, it was, that's what, that was the plan going forward. So there wasn't necessarily a, and, you know, a thought of, Hey, we want to keep you at this innings count on the year. Um, you know, certain pitch counts in games, it was more about, you know, communication with us um, and the, you know, the coaches, and then also just looking at, you know, health in, in general. Um, you know, we knew if we were going to get to the postseason, we had to keep everyone healthy 162 games. So, um, that was kind of the emphasis on this last year. Um, it also helps when you have the, you know, the Hader and Williams at the back end of games to to hand the ball over the, the bullpen in the seventh or eighth inning, whatever it may be. So um, I think that's just kind of was the focus last year. I don't know what it's going to be this year. Um, you know, it could be completely different with, you know, guys that are signed or um, maybe roster restrictions that come about in the CBA. We don't, we don't really know what the, what's going to happen there, but um yeah, I think the Brewers, like you say, have kind of always been the the leaders in, you know, how to use guys differently as far as getting outs. Um, for years, I was always, hey, we have out getters, we don't have starters. I think we kind of changed that narrative a little bit this year with the starters we're running out there that, hey, we do have starters and now we have some guys in the bullpen. So it's just one of those things that kind of evolves year to year, depending on who we have in our staff. Yeah, you, you have starters. You have the Cy Young Award winner on your staff, brother. That's you. So, you know, when you get that award, I got to tell you that uh, – uh, the Cy Young Award itself is kind of funny because the grip that the pitcher has is kind of a dry spitter. You know, his fingers <laughs> on the note. Notice that when you get the award, if you learn that pitch too, it's lights out with your cutter and you learn a dry spitter, it's all over. But, okay. you know, you know, one of, one of the questions I had Corbin along those lines was um, 
Did you feel like the extra rest helped you? I know you don't have a lot of basis for comparison. It's a long time in a rotation, but did you feel like that extra, you know, that extra day here and there? I know, I guess it, it came out to you pitched four days rest uh, twice, five days rest 17 times, and six days rest six times. Do you feel like that really helped you? Did you get used to that extra rest? Did it give you a little extra life in your arm? Um, I definitely – I do think it helped um, coming through like July and August, um, when, you know, kind of when you start to feel the dog days of the season. Um, you know, everyone seems to get new lives September, October, just because you get that adrenaline rest of the postseason. So I do think it helped in July and August. Um, but on the, you know, on the flip side of it, I'm a guy that I'm very routine based and I get the most out of my workouts and my throwing program, my recovery, um, going every five days. So that's something that, um, you know, I've looked forward to getting back to is, is throwing every five days and getting out there, you know, 30 plus times this year is only coming out to 28 regular season and the one postseason starts. So, um, you know, I do look forward to getting back in a normal five day, getting back out there every, um, you know, throwing 200 plus innings, um, looking to be that workhorse that, um, that every team needs. So, um, you know, we have Brandon Woodruff, Freddie Peralta guys that are, you know, that are built to do that as well. So I think that's something that we will get back to, um, you know, depending on again, who we sign in, in free agency and the stuff this off season, if, if you go back out there and you have, you know, lockdown bullpen from 69, it obviously makes it really easy on, on the coaching staff to, to turn to those guys. So it's one of those things we'll see what happens, but yeah, I definitely look forward to, to getting out there every, every five days and, and throwing 200 plus innings. There was a couple of games this year. I wanted to talk to you about individual performances and certainly James Smythe, probably a good time for him to jump into as well, to kind of put your season into perspective. I mean, we, we had that debate too. We thought the quality of your, of your numbers this year were, were that much above that, that you are very much deserving of the Cy Young Award. I know there's a big debate on, you know, uh, Zach Wheeler and throwing over 200 innings and your competition, but the quality of your numbers were so good. And I know James, probably a good time for you to jump in here. Uh, James and I do, uh, James does research for us, one of the best in history. So James, the, the floor is yours. Well, uh, 2.43 ERA led the National League, 35.6 percent K rate led the national league, uh, 5.2% walk rate second in the NL, just a tick 0.1 behind, uh, Julio Urias, uh, and leading the majors in strikeout to walk ratio and homers per nine. Um, going from the 2019 season with an eight, eight, two ERA to one of the best, uh, seasons in recent history, what went into that? And, and I, and, and I want to focus on uh, particularly your work with Brian Kane, a uh, sports psychologist and mental performance coach. You've talked about the mental side of pitching too. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So coming off 2019, um, you know, I, I had a meeting with the brewers, all the analytics staff, and it's like, Hey, you know, the, the numbers are there. Um, obviously the, the, the results weren't what we wanted, but the certain, you know, underneath the surface, the things we're looking for that's there. So it's just, you know, take, going to take a few, um, you know, maybe mechanical changes, pitch changes, whatever it may be. Um, but I took it upon myself to, to go and, and, and seek out, um, Brian Kane to work with him. Um, you know, cause I knew the talent was there. Um, when I came up in 18, I had a great, you know, great rookie season out of the bullpen. Um, it just didn't translate to a starter. And so I think for me coming up in 18, it was, you had all the adrenaline first time in the big leagues, you're just kind of flying by the, the you know, the, the pants of your seat there. Um, and so, for me, when I came as a starter in 2019, I wasn't prepared for it. You know, I wasn't ready to pitch at that level um, as a starter. So I had to really find the routine, everything outside of baseball 
to fully prepare so that when I got on the mound, I wasn't trying to think through all these different thoughts, think of what I'm doing out there. It was going, you know, just pitch, have fun and execute pitches. Um, so that's kind of what I started after 2019 was finding that routine, finding that base of what I needed to do to grow, to be the best pitcher I could be. Um, so for us, that was putting routines in place, um, finding a process that worked every, you know, for five days leading up to the outing. Um, so 2020 was actually kind of the trial run and we were still kind of tinkering with routines and different processes, um, to get where we wanted. And throughout that season, we kind of found something that was working. Obviously we had, had a good year, um, but that we could carry over into 2021. And, um, it's something that I obviously am really happy I did. Um, it's something that I think is the, the base and the foundation of, of what I can do for the next eight, 10, 12, however long I pitch, um, years, um, just to go back on is when I do start to struggle, I have this routines and these processes and things that I can go back and look, I've done it before. Let's just get everything back in place, get the mind right and go out and just pitch and have fun. You know, for a young pitcher in terms of, uh, you know, you talking about developing new routines, having that as the, the fallback approach, like if things aren't going well, you have a place to fall back on reflect and get back on track. Also developing a new pitch that obviously turned out to be pretty brilliant at the time though, like in that transitional period, so there's a lot of things that you are trying to, to tinker with uh, first with, with developing a pitch like the cutter beginning a new pitch. What was the first step? How, how should young pitchers begin developing new pitches? Yeah. I mean, the first step is, is just knowing what you do well. I knew that I could spin the baseball really well. Um, I had a good slider. So that was kind of the base for where I wanted everything to go. Um, I could always spin a four-seam fastball really well. I had a good, the good spin rate. I just couldn't locate it. So for me, it was how can we take these good spin rates? I know I spin the ball well. You know, what can I do to, you know, to better use those? And for me, it started as a, as a hard slider that is morphed into this cutter. Um, so I, I just I knew how my hand worked. I knew what I could do well. Um, so then once we got the cutter figured out, it helped, it actually helped my slider a little bit. It helped me spin the curveball even better. So just by adding this one pitch, it unlocked all these other pitches, um, that just made everything else better. And then started with the understanding of knowing what I do best. And that was, that was spinning the baseball. And now you're at, at the polar opposite end of that, like probably pitching with a lot of confidence, obviously. And, and that happens through the massive amount of success that you have here. When did you turn that corner with your confidence in the big leagues where you could kind of say to yourself, man, I'm Corbin Burns. I'm elite. You know, no one's beating me. When did that first hit you in the big leagues? Uh, for me, it actually happened right at the beginning of 2020. Um, going into spring training, I knew that I had, I had found some stuff, um, worked on the mentality, um, knew what I wanted to do. And as so, soon as uh, the spring training kicked off in 2020, I went out and threw the ball really well. Um, you know, for me, it was just continue to do that. I started the year in 2020 in a tandem with, with Brett Anderson, um, in that shortened season. So it wasn't until we had a few guys go down that I actually got the opportunity to start. And then we just took off from there. But, um, you know, one of the things that we preached when I was, um, working on the mentality side with Brian Kane is hey, fake it till you make it. You got to go out there and you have to be the guy of, Hey, I'm the best pitcher in the league. It doesn't, I don't care what just happened in 2019. Yes. I had an 8.80 area, but I know I'm the best pitcher in the league. When I sign on the mound, I'll make everyone feel it. I'm going to make everyone see it. And I kind of took that mentality and ran with it in 2020. It, it worked great. And so, like I said, we have that fallback of, of what we knew 
um, was going to work and just took off with it in 2021. And, and now we can say that we are the best in the league. David, when was that coming of age moment for you in the big leagues with, with confidence? You know, there's certain lessons you have to learn for yourself on the mound. I love that fake until we make it or until you make it line. It really is true. Uh, pitching coaches can tell you what to do or give you all the, the best advice in the world. I was around great pitching coaches, but there's only so far they can get you. There's just certain, there's a light bulb effect. You can get on the mound when, when you start to have success or you get away with a pitch or you find a, a formula that works, some sort of sequence of pitches that work. And uh, next thing you know, the confidence just starts to build. And uh, the best athletes I've been around, the, the Cy Young Award winners, the Hall of Famers, sometimes uh, are the most insecure ones. You know, His confidence can be very fleeting out there. You can, you can get your ass handed to you, you know, in any given night out there. And the next thing you know, you start to doubt that doubt creeps in and that's something you have to solve for yourself. And that's why I like what Corbin had to say there. Cause he really has seen, it seems like he's figured out a lot of this stuff on his own, the psychological part, the technological part, the analytical part, and then just the pure stuff part. I think he's kind of mastered the right mix. And I guess that that's a question, you know, while I have you Corbin, cause I'm, I'm an old dog, but I'm fascinated with some of the new technology. I wish I had some of these toys when I pitched, you know, 20 years ago or so, uh, uh, what do you look at? What numbers do you look at as far as the analytical side? Do you have, you know, the, the edutronic cameras going on on your side sessions? Uh, do, you, do you use Repsoto? Is there something you pay attention to, whether it's spin rate, vertical, horizontal, release point, start to start? Is there any one thing that you found especially useful or that you guys in Milwaukee, you know, and your team of analysts there uh, that they use to try to give you that information or interpret you know, the data to you. Yeah. So a lot of the analytics stuff that I, that I look at, I will only look at in the off season. Um, so as I'm getting back into uh, getting back into shape, getting the arm going, um, I'm able to throw most of my bullpens at the complex here in Arizona for when I train. Um, so I, we have access to, to the rap soda, the track man. Um, so those are the stuff that I'm looking at um, when I'm throwing those first couple bullpens of the year, getting into spring training, looking at spring training outings is where we're looking at, um, you know, different vertical and horizontal rises on, on pitches. Um, for, for me, I'm like the curveball. We're obviously we're looking at the vertical, um, looking at the spin rates, um, the cutter. We're looking at both kind of vertical and horizontal. The one we focus on the most is actually my, my sinker. That's where we, we look at analytics the most just because we're trying to continue to make that pitch um, a better pitch, something that we can complement the other, you know, the curveballs and sliders with. Um, so that's actually what we look at the most. In season, I, I don't look at it hardly at all. Um, it's one of those things that I like to focus on just trying to execute pitches and, and do them like count on the mound. Um, if you go up there and you're in your warmup for the game is, you know, my, Hey, my slider doesn't have this kind of vertical break on it today. You already, you already second gauging yourself and, and you're in trouble from the get go. So for me, once the, once we're in season, everything's feel, Hey, this feels good. Okay. We're rolling with it. I don't care if it analytically looks horrible. If we're up there getting out with it, then Hey, it's good enough kind of thing. So um, most of my analytics and looking at different types of spin rates and that kind of stuff comes in the off season and in spring training. Very interesting. And, you know, I think that, that that's uh, pretty smart if you think about it, because the last thing you want to do is get defensive. You're right. You, you get that defeatist attitude. If you, you're concentrated on weaknesses constantly, instead of pitching to your strengths. So I, I have one question for you. You had a couple of just dandy, phenomenal games this year, individual games. And I think you probably know which ones I'm talking about, but they're a month apart, August 11th and September 11th. You know, I wanted to ask you, which game you thought was better? They're both remarkable games. I mean, obviously you're part of a, you know, a no hitter. You threw eight inning no hitter that hater came in and closed it out for you. So you, you had a collective no hitter, 115 pitches in that game after eight innings. 
Uh, you ended up with 14 Ks. And then, of course, on August 11th, you struck out 10 in a row. And uh, you ended up with 15 Ks in eight innings. Uh, just two remarkable games. Which one was your better game in your mind? My better game was the was the one against Chicago on August 11th. The uh, the, the the 10 in a row, 15 Ks. Um, that day was, I think, when I I had to go back and look as far as like my execution numbers and everything um, was by far the best. Um, you know, spinning the ball well, we could throw the ball wherever we wanted to. Um, the no hitter um, September 11th was one of those that just like any no hitter, you got to have some luck. Um, you got to have some great plays behind you. Um, that wasn't a great day with the cutter. Um, I remember I, you know, left a lot over the plate that guys were just swinging through or ha- happened to hit at guys. So, um, yes, we still ended up punching out 14. It was a no hitter, but um, the game on on August 11th was by far my my best of the year as far as executing pitches, spinning the ball, just kind of doing whatever we wanted to do out there. Were you? Were you did you realize that you were you, that you had tied a major league record when you did 10 in a row there, or even go back to Tom Seaver? Tom Seaver struck out 10 in a row to end a game one day and, and his 19 strikeout game. So, you know, you're in pretty elite company there. Did you realize that when it was happening? I didn't. Um, I didn't realize it until I, – I, I didn't realize we had done something until our catcher caught the 10th caught the in a row and threw it off to the side. And I was like, hey, I, like, I want that baseball. Like, what's yeah. going on? Like, what are we doing? And he's like, he just waved me off. Like, no, just get the ball and get back on the mound. So I didn't realize it until we got back in the dugout. Um, that I saw our, our, our equipment guy I was like, Hey, what, like, what, what, what did we just do? Like, what happened? He's like, Oh, that's a, that's a major league record for 10 strikeouts in a row. I was like, Oh, I had no idea. So yeah, that was one of those kind of, kind of funny moments that I was kind of asking, you know, give me the ball back. Like, what's going on? And he's throwing the ball off and they're celebrating in the diet. Yeah. Just one of those days. Some, you had no idea. Some kind of groove you must've been in that feeling, man. Incredible. And starting off the season too, the third thing I wanted to bring up, was you, you didn't walk anybody for two, like almost two months or a month and a half. So how did that feel? I mean, you started out, I guess, four starts in a row or 58 strikeouts before you walked a batter. To start out your season, just unbelievable way to start your season. Were you aware of that too? That, hey, you know, you know if you get the three balls on a batter, hey, I might, I might walk my first batter of the year. Did, did you have that in the back of your mind? I, I was aware of that one um, just because at every – you know, like 20 something, they, they made, you know, it was like 20, 30, 40, every time you pass someone they were, they were making a big deal about it. So that one, that one was tough just because, you know, the media was on it every single time. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, my goal to start, start the year wasn't, Hey, I'm going to go out there and try to strike it as many guys as I can without walking a guy. That's, you know, that's not, that's not a goal you can do because guarantee you that first outing you're going to walk a guy. So um, for me, it was just, Hey, I know I want to make the hitters beat me. Um, I don't want to beat myself by hitting guys and putting guys on base and free passes. Um, you know, we pitchers have a tough enough time trying to get guys out with now with some of these hitters that are up there. Like, Hey, if we're going to, if we're going to get beat, make them beat me. So for me, it was like, let's get in the zone early. Um, if they get some hit, hits early on in the count, you know, good for them. Um, more than likely it's going to be some weak contact or we're getting into, into O2 counts that we can go for, for a strikeout. So um, that's something, something I wasn't trying to do. Um you know, like when we get to like three Oh counts, like you say, you know, are you thinking about Oh three Oh? I can't walk this guy. Like for me, the, the mindset, as soon as I go three Oh, if I'm, if I, in my head go, okay, I can't walk this guy. You, can, you might as well just put your hand out and walk him. Cause you're, you're going to walk him. So um, for me, it was always in, you know, in green light mode and, in, in, in yes mode going after uh, didn't matter who it was. If we we're down three Oh, here, here's a cutter right down the middle. See what you can do with it kind of thing. So um, yeah, there, there was never a doubt of, Hey, I'm three Oh, uh, this guy's, I'm going to walk in now for me. It was just, constantly attacking and just going after guys. Yeah, there were multiple highlights of 
you know, individual games or certain stretches of your season that really just stood out above the rest. And I think that kind of, it, it is a, a microcosm of how you came to win the Cy Young Award, right? I mean, you lower workload, everyone was talking about that, but what you did when you were on the mound was extraordinary. And, and there are a few things that really jumped out to mind between your Road ERA, 1.94 road ERA in 13 games. I think the overall consistency where you never really had a, a monthly ERA higher than, I think, 3.2 really stood out. But then only seven home runs. You only gave up seven home runs, period. Um, and that really jumped out to me as well. What when, when you see that low home run total, especially, it doesn't matter if it's 200 innings, 167 innings, when it's just that low and you have time to look back on that body of work, keeping the ball in the ballpark, what comes to mind? Yeah, that's just, I, I think that's just a good job of, uh, you know, myself, the catchers, um, everyone involved, you know, doing their homework of game planning, um, executing pitches, um, pitch sequencing. Um, it, it's, it, it takes more than just me going out there and throwing the baseball. It takes, you know, all the work on the back end of it, um, coaching staff, catchers, you know, everyone that's going into putting a game plan together and pitch sequencing. I mean, that, that all goes into not making one bad pitch in an AB. Basically it's usually, usually it's um, very unlikely you find a, Hey, I executed this pitch in a good count and the guy hit it out. Um, you know, when they do that, all you can do is just tip your cap and say, Hey, it's a great piece of hitting. Most of the time it's a, you know, it's a mistake. It's a, a pitch in a bad count. Um, you know, it's falling behind two Oh, and you got to get ahead try to get back in the count and you give up a home or that kind of thing. So um yeah, for me, it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's the work we put in behind the scenes um, to try to minimize getting into bad counts, getting into bad sequences. Um, and then also, you know, just a lot of luck along the way of some, some guys that you do make a, make a bad pitch and they, they square it up and doesn't go out or they just miss it, that kind of thing. Um, you know, it wasn't until I think 2019 that I had the issue with the home run ball. Usually I've been pretty good at getting a lot of ground balls, um, keeping the ball in the yard. So just one of those things that just happened to be that had the right formula for everything this year. When you look back at the end of the regular season, you have a chance to look over, you know, your stats and did you, did you believe you had enough innings to win the Cy Young award? I thought so. Um, you know, personally I went out there and, you know, I took the balls whenever they, I was given the ball. Um, obviously in a six man rotation, I couldn't control that. Um, but Hey, when they said it's your, your day, I'm going to go out there and give everything I can. Um, I had some, a couple of short starts coming back from, from COVID that obviously, um, kept the innings down and missed a couple starts from, from the COVID IL. Um, so that obviously hurt, but, you know, personally, when I went out there and I took the ball, it was, I was going as deep as I could in the game until they took the ball from me. And then whenever they would give me the ball, five, six, seven days, whatever it may have been, um, you know, I was, I was ready to take it. It was enough innings to qualify for the ERA title. So I think that's a, that's a good benchmark. And also this year in all of major league baseball, there were more starts made on five days rest than four days rest. So whether it's a six man rotation or squeezing in a, a spot starter, pushing a guy back a day, it seems like this is something that's kind of uh, becoming more of the norm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, th I think it was only what four or five guys through over 200 innings, I think this year. So um, that's definitely a lot different than, than you're seeing from the last you know, 15, 20 years of, of starters. So I don't know if, like you say, if it's just the new, the new age of baseball um, or I think for us, it was a little bit of the new age and a little bit of coming off of the, uh, the shortened season. Um, you know, I think now with the starting pitching that we have, well, I would imagine we're probably going to get back to 
a, a typical five-man rotation with a couple of spot starts here and there to, to give some guys some extra breaks. But um, yeah, this year was definitely one a season that was was you know not like any other. In between you and and Brandon Woodruff, Freddie Peralta, you have some really promising young pitchers coming up. Aaron Ashby, Ethan Small, then you know in the bullpen, the haters, the Devin Williams. What do you think the Brewers do really well in developing pitchers? Yeah, so um, ever since you know I was drafted, um, you know, the, the Brewers do a good job of digging deep into what you do best. Um, ever since I was drafted, they knew I had a good slider. They, they knew I spun the ball well. So they're, they're able to recognize what everyone does well. Um, Brandon Woodruff's got a good fastball, so they try to find ways to maximize his fastball. Freddie's got a good fastball. So they, they find ways for everyone to, to try to maximize what they can get. Um, another story for this year is Eric Lauer. Um, you know, he struggled, struggled last year, um, had a great year this year. They found some, you know, a couple of tweaks here and there to make, get the best, to get the most out of him. Adrian Hauser had a good year. This year. I mean, everyone, I can name so many guys that they had great years just because the Brewers have done a good job of finding what they do. Then it's also on, on our shoulders to, to execute those plans and get after it and get, put the work in. But um, you know, they've, they've done it every year. Um, so I, I expect that, whether it's the Ashby's, the Smalls, there might be guys that they sign that you've never even heard of that all of a sudden make an impact this year. That's just the Brewers do a good job of, of finding those guys and, and doing a great job of, of maximizing their potential. Yeah, Corbin, you mentioned something earlier uh, when we, you were comparing your two great games, the, the, the no-hitter and then the uh, 10 consecutive strikeout game, and you said something that was really interesting to me. You said my execution numbers or something to that effect, I believe, were better in, in the 10 consecutive strikeout game. Is that, is that something that your staff, your analytics staff gives you after every start, sort of an execution number? Have they crystallized that to where you can look start to start and say, you know what, uh, I'm trusting the process, going, going to sports psychiatry, right? I mean, I'm going to execute my pitches. Maybe they bloop a couple in. Maybe it just wasn't my day. I was unlucky. Is that something you buy into on the sports psychiatry side? Uh, you know, just trust the process. And then secondly, do you have a number? after every start that, that you crystallize into sort of an efficiency number or an execution number? Yeah. So this is something I started with, with Brian Kane um, when we uh, started, started looking at the mentality of it and how we could break down um, performances. Um, looking at results is a very bad way of breaking down a performance because depends on who the team you play, the luck you have, like you said. Um, so this is something he used with guys he'd worked in the past and something that I took with and fully dove into. And so I find this execution number the day after I pitch. Um, so we have access to all of our video from the next day. So it usually takes me 45 minutes to an hour um, to break down the, the start from the day before. Um, I make sure to do it the day after so that my day two for the bullpen day, I know what to, uh, what I want to work on, what, what to attack in the bullpen. But so it's usually the day after and it's just basically you go in and you track, you track every pitch. Um, you know, I have a pretty decent idea after the night ends um, when I get off the mound, what that number is going to be. Uh, percentage wise. Um, and then I go in the next day and, and kind of track every pitch and calculate that percentage. And for me, I'm looking to a good outing is, you know, 75 to 78% execution. Um, I think the, uh, the 10 strikeout in a row day, um, I think we got it. To, I think it was close to 82%. The no hitter was actually maybe only 74, 75%. So it was actually, you know, significantly lower, but um, yeah, it's just one of those things that, you know, I go in, I, I know the count, I know the pitches, I'm sitting there looking at it. Um, if it's executed pitch, I mark it down at the end of the, at the end of the, the video session, it's, you know, just how many did we execute correctly? 
that that's based on your judgment, right? Just in terms of location or quality of stuff. Do you have sort of your own formula that in your mind that you kind of grade yourself on? Yeah, it's more about, you know, um, looking at the, the count and then, um, you know, where the, where the location is supposed to be, obviously, uh, you know, an OO cutter execution wise is going to be a little bit bigger of a range versus, uh, you know, an O2 cutter. Um, so it's one of those things you just kind of take into account. It's my personal judgment. Um, and it's just, I mean, some days it kind of depends on how upset I am from the day before. Maybe I'm going to be harsher on myself, but, um, but yeah, I just try to take it all as looking at it at count location. And that's kind of how, how I, how I, um, whether it's considered an executed pitch or not. That's fantastic. That's a fantastic approach. I love it. I love the, the, the whole mentality behind that of uh, concentrating on what you can control, right? You're the pitcher, you're on the mound, the execution of the pitch, the quality of the pitch, the sequencing, some things that are in your control. Once the ball, once the ball leaves your hand, sometimes it's out of your control, right? The, the batted Absolutely. ball, the defense behind you. That's why we have so many different metrics we can look at. And that's where James Smythe and I get into a lot of conversations before our games about these sorts of theories. And, you know, I'm fascinated with it. I, I can see, you know, why you made so many strides, Corbin. You're a, you're a well-deserving Cy Young Award winner. The quality of your numbers was unmatched. When you were on the mound this year and I saw some of those games you pitched, I was looking at a Cy Young Award winner. I was looking at Cy Young Award performances. Uh, you know, you're right. The game's changing in terms of workload, five days rest, six-man rotation. But there's no doubt. You started out your season with 58 Ks before you walked a batter. You struck out 10 consecutive batters in one start. You combined on a no-hitter in another start. Just just a remarkable season, Corbin. I, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on here and talking to us. And, and this, this is, this is a, a pitching blog. You know, this is about to celebrate pitching. I'm a nerd. I'm a pitching nerd. I'm, I spent my whole life thinking about pitching. I still do. The spin, how to make a ball break, how to get better, all of it I'm, I'm fascinated with. And, you know, you, you've taught me something here today, Corbin, so I appreciate that. Uh, you, you're being so forthright with us in terms of how you approach things, what you've learned, uh, everything from soup to nuts, the, the analytical side, the sports psychiatry side, and then just your side on the mound, how you approach it. You know, not, not looking, not getting too analytical until the offseason. I think that's that's just a fantastic approach. You know, I, I wish you nothing but the best. Love everything you had to say today. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you guys very much for, for having me on. Congrats, Corbin. Happy holidays Congrats, to you, man. Thanks. thanks. Yeah, you guys as well. David, how prevalent do you think that that next day self-evaluation process is around the majors? How many teams are incorporating that to the level that maybe the Brewers are doing? I think it's probably more prevalent than you, you would think. And it's kind of a tie in, uh, not just with the analytic side of things that go on on major league teams and in, and in organizations, but also the psychiatry side, psychological side as well, in terms of how you evaluate yourself. Uh, is it, is it process oriented? Trust the process is a term you hear a lot in, in today's major league clubhouses, as opposed to just results oriented, and that, that's the big shift that I've seen in the game over the last 20 years is we used to be very results-oriented. Did I win the game? Uh, then I didn't do my job. You know, the most important thing was win the game. I still think that's important, but it didn't tell the whole story. So uh, there's a lot. As you peel back the layers, uh, there, there's, the, there's the luck factor involved. There's the random variance factor involved. Uh, did I make a good pitch? Was the hitter lucky? Did he bloop it in on a broken bat? Did my defense let me down? Or did they, did they pick me up? You know, there's so many variables involved to, to how you evaluate performances that it's a big sea change in terms of the mindset of today's athlete. And uh, Corbin Burns kind of shed the light on it for us uh, in this interview in terms of 
how he evaluates himself, the quality of the pitch. Uh, he gives himself his own personal grade. I think there's probably some variation of that in, in just about every major league clubhouse that when you sit down the day after you start and you look at the quality of your pitches and the results, sometimes they don't match up. Say, hey, you did your job. Keep Stay right there. Keep doing your job. Keep executing your pitches. The results will be there for you. Uh, sometimes that's hard to see. You know, when you're losing two, three, four in a row and you're still pitching well, and you're not getting run support, you're not getting decent defensive support, you're not getting any wins. It, it's a hard thing to sell, but it seems like nowadays it's much more prevalent in, the, in these clubhouses. Well, Coney, you bring it up a lot on the, on the Yankee broadcasts, and, and we've talked about it in here, uh, fielding independent pitching, trying to strip away the vagaries of batted ball luck and to look at what are the things that, the pitcher controls. And you talked about this with Corbin uh, strikeouts, walks, home runs. Those are the three main components that, that are most in the pitcher's control. And with FIP, it's scaled to ERA to make it an apples to apples comparison. And Corbin 1.63 FIP this year, which is the second lowest in any qualified season since expansion in 1961. The only one better was peak Pedro Martinez in 1999. Pedro was 1.39 and Burns 1.63. So when boiling it down to the things that is most in the pitcher's control, Burns was as good as anybody ever. You know, the Brewers have the personnel to pull off something like a six-man rotation. Not too many other teams do, but we know this is a copycat sport. Uh, Are you a little surprised that, we, we didn't see other teams kind of incorporate that. Or do you think that, you know, this could be something that you need a full season for and prepare for it going uh, into spring training? Do you think we'll see some teams adopt the six-man rotation in 2022 based on the Brewers' success? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think in some regards, you know, uh, James and I have talked about this as well as we've seen this happen over the last several years is that there's almost kind of been – a pseudo six-man rotation going on for a while now. And, and with the off days uh, locked in there and, and pitching coaches able to work around those off days and give extra rest whenever they can here and there. So, yeah, to me, the, the question I wanted to ask Corbin was, did he notice a difference? Did he feel stronger? How did the extra rest impact his performance? He averaged six innings per start. So the days he did start, he was actually able to give them a little more length. So I, I'm curious to that correlation right there. You know, we talk about starting pitchers going deeper into the games. Is there a correlation between maybe an extra day of rest? And maybe that pitcher can give you 115 pitches rather than 100 pitches on a regular basis. Maybe they can pitch into the sixth or seventh inning because they're a little stronger and they're retaining their stuff a little bit better. You know, I'm not sure that's the case. I know later in my career it was the case for me. A little extra rest in between starts gave me some elasticity back in my arm. My stuff got a little better. My fastball was a little more alive. The spin on my breaking stuff was a little sharper. At least that's what I thought. That was my perception back then. So I'm really interested in the extra rest and the quality of the pitching uh, as we move forward. It seemed to work for Corbin Burns. You know, when you look at him, he had 17 starts this year where he had five days rest. And uh, he ends up winning the Cy Young Award. So uh, the proof's in the pudding there. It seemed to work for him. Well, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to see – how this looks with a more normal season as we get farther away from the shortened 2020 season and mentioned this in in the interview, but uh, MLB starts by rest. 33% of them were made on four days rest. 
37% of them were made on five days rest. So like Coney, you said, it's not just the six man rotation. You have off days and you don't skip a guy. So that's still five starts from your starters in a six day span. You also, Oh, this start was a little longer last time. So we'll squeeze in a spot guy to, to, to give everyone an extra day. These, these things happen more and more now. And I want to know when we have next season, will Will this trend continue? Will it grow? Uh, it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. Tell you what, Corbin Burns said he, you know, he kind of preferred and was looking forward to the Brewers potentially going back to a, a more of a five-man rotation for next year. He said that Peralta and Woodruff felt the same way. You know, we may have not have seen the best that the Brewers rotation has to offer. And that's kind of a scary thought for everyone involved uh, in the National League Central. So uh, Corbin Burns, a, a terrific 2021 season, obviously leading to the National League Cy Young Award. James, this week, this day in, in pitching history, it's late November, early December, but there's always something that you're going to be able to find. So what do we have for this date in pitching history today? All right, well, Max Scherzer signing being a big topic this week. We're going to stay with the aging Hall of Famer making the highest average annual salary for a pitcher. We're going to keep, we're going to stay in that lane. November 30th, 1998. So this is dropping on Tuesday. It'll be the anniversary, 23 years to the day. Randy Johnson signs with the Diamondbacks as a free agent. He was one of the best pitchers in the game with the Mariners. He had a monster 98 stretch run with the Astros after a deadline trade, and he signed a four-year $52.4 million deal. So that made him the highest paid pitcher in the game at $13.1 million a season. Now Max is getting over 43. Now when the big unit signed, he was already 35. So this deal was going to be 35, 36, 37, 38 for the ages on his four-year deal. Sounds risky. But then Johnson had maybe the best free agent signing in baseball history, because in the four years, you can't top this. He won the national league Cy Young award in all four seasons. He went 81 and 27. So that's an average of about 20 and seven per year as the win loss record, a two, four, eight ERA, his ERA plus was 187. So almost twice as good as uh, the, the league average pitcher at the time. And he averaged, 257 innings and 354 strikeouts per season over nine and a half war. So he's great on an individual level. And he also also vaulted a, uh, an expansion team into relevance. And he won a world series in year three as he and Kurt Schilling carried the diamondbacks uh, to a championship. So that one couldn't really go uh, any better. And Max Scherzer's first deal is also up there for the best free agent signings in, in MLB history. And we'll see, uh, we'll see how the, these three years go with Max. Big unit. <laughs> Let me tell you, there's an old expression called he's throwing fuzz. Pitcher, you know, has fuzz on his fastball. That was Randy Johnson, especially in the kingdom. I mean, his fastball was so fast that it looked blurry. It looked, the ball looked fuzzy coming into home plate. And that, hence the term he's throwing fuzz. That was Randy Johnson. One, one thing I liked uh, when I was looking this up, finding the, the contemporary press accounts at the time, um, one note uh, from our pal, Buck Showalter, uh, he was the manager at the time uh, for Arizona, and he said his no facial hair, no long hair rule 
would no longer apply for Randy Johnson. He said, we told Randy right from the get-go, we like him just the way he is. Uh, that rule is going to be grandfathered for him. If someone comes to me and says they want to do that, I'll tell them, you match what he does on the mound, then we'll talk about it. <laughs> David, what, what you remember what was being said, I guess specifically in that 95 season, what was being said in the Yankee dugout um, about Randy Johnson when you guys would play the Mariners? Well, just that you can't see the ball, you know, I mean, you're you're talking about the Arizona years. I'm going back to the kingdom years and it was the lighting in the kingdom wasn't great to begin with. It was, it was kind of murky in there to be, you know, to start with. And then Randy Johnson on the mound, uh, you could hear the baseball better than you could see it. And the guy was throwing upper nineties and low hundreds with a razor blade slider. Uh, it, It just, players would come back and go, I can't see the ball. I can't pick it up. It, it looks blurry. It looks fuzzy. You know, that Randy Johnson throwing in the kingdom in his peak, you know, it just it was that good. He was that, that much better than everybody else that he could really just dominate a game. Maybe arguably the best left-handed pitcher in the history of the game. He's in that argument. I mean, if you want to take the five best left-handed starters, put Sandy Koufax in there, put Warren Spahn in there, you know, Randy Johnson is right at the top of the list. You can make a strong argument. He's the best left-handed starter in the history of the game. Steve Carlton in that argument as well. I mean, we, we can make a list. You can't make a list without Randy Johnson on that list. Yeah, that le- that's a lethal combo. A, a picture of Randy Johnson's caliber in a place like the Kingdom, where a lot of people have said it was really tough to see the baseball in that building. So that's uh, that's probably up there with the pairing of dominant pitchers and places where it is – Hard as hell to pick up a baseball, Randy Johnson uh, and the Kingdom for sure. All right, guys, three up, three down here as we uh, we close out this episode of Toe in the Slab. Each of us gives one storyline around the game that we believe deserves a you know a little more attention on it. And there's plenty to choose from here over the last week or so. There was no rest over the Thanksgiving holiday. So, David, what do you have? Three up, three down. Oh well, you know I, I think. You know, we, we touched on this collective bargaining agreement, you know, not uh, not panicking, uh, you know, until, until this thing goes on into the offseason and you actually are looking at missing games played. This is semantics right now. This is part of the process. And when it's time to make a deal, when the timing's right to make a deal, a, a deal will be made. Uh, but if you're the Yankee fans right now and you're wondering, wow, the Mets just made hay. Boy, they're really you know, making a lot of moves. Uh, if you're looking around wondering what the Yankees are going to do, you know, Cashman has always been somebody who weighs everything in the market. He's in on everybody. He's asking questions on every free agent out there. There's also a robust potential trade market. The Oakland A's kind of threw everybody up in arms by sending their manager down south to San Diego and Bob Melvin. Does that signal a potential fire sale? And they have a loaded roster, including a great first baseman and Matt Olson and a couple of great pitchers as well. So there's a lot to weigh here. Don't get too discouraged if you're Yankee fans. There's a lot of different ways for the Yankees to improve this team. And it, might, it might not involve, you know, outbidding the Mets for Max Scherzer and going to 45 or $50 million a year. That probably wasn't the answer for the Yankees in this go-round. But I have a feeling that the, the Yankees are operating on multiple fronts. They have multiple needs. Uh, if you're a Yankee fan, give it a little more time and see what happens here because I have a feeling that the trade market – could be something that the Yankees could be very involved in as we see these numbers come in on the high side for a lot of these early signings on the free agents. 
the Yankees in recent history do their best work when they're not being talked about or the actual deal that they make is not on anyone's radar. So I, I agree with you there. And as we are recording this, another pitching arm has fallen off the, the free agent market. It's uh, our friend from last week, Robbie Ray has uh, reportedly, according to, you know, Jeff Passan, the, you know, Joel Sherman, Ken Rosenthal is going to the Mariners. So five years, 115 million for Robbie Ray. He gets a full no trade, according to Joel Sherman, in the first two years, and he can opt out after the third. And the Cy Young Award winner has a new home. You know, you saw the Barrio steal, the Gosman contract. You thought eh, it might be a little tough to squeeze Robbie Ray back into Toronto's starting rotation, but here he goes to another team that was neck and neck with Toronto and the other wild card teams, and the, the Mariners are are. I've caught up. I'm not, I wasn't going to say are catching up. They are right there, and they add the Cy Young Award winner to the rotation. Yeah, it's an interesting free agency market because several teams are involved. You know, and several teams have the payroll to work, including Seattle, including Texas. Toronto's obviously looking to make moves as well. So it's an interesting free agency market. It's not the type of market where the Yankees can impose their will, so to speak, that we've seen in years past or decades past. So. It's a different dynamic now for, for Yankee fans to, to kind of consume uh, what's going on. And Robbie Ray, uh, you look at uh, Toronto and Marcus Simeon as well. You talk about the year of the pillow contracts really working out. <laughs> I'm going to have a little soft landing spot, do a one-year deal, reestablish my value. That strategy worked so well for Robbie Ray and Marcus Simeon. And you see a lot of agents that look at that strategy as a, as a, as a potential uh, – you know, uh, something that you can really incorporate. Uh, those players uh, did it as well as anybody ever has, in my mind, especially Simeon. So you can add a raise name to the long list of players now who maybe weren't expected to strike a deal before the CBA expired to to get a deal done before December. It's uh, it's wild if you are in this baseball world that we're all in right now. Uh, James, what do you have? Three up, three down. Uh, in the CBA vein, uh, I, Coney has said not to panic on a, on the team level front about, you know, teams making moves or not making moves with the impending lockout, uh, coming this week. Uh, let's not panic until we actually could have spring training start late or, or the opening day uh, of the season be in jeopardy. Uh, we all remember the, well, actually, some of our listeners might not remember the uh, the 94-95 player strike, uh, which shortened, uh, which ended the 94 season and shortened the 95 season. Um, and uh, a generation before that, the uh, the 1981 player strike that that shortened a season um, in the in the middle of the year, uh, 1972 uh, shortened the season by about a week. So that's that's not too bad, but. Those three, or particularly 81 and 94, get a lot of the attention. But most of the baseball work stoppages of the eight um, that have happened, five of them did not result in any shortening of the season. So if this gets cleared up by February, no harm, no foul. And we'll have the the frenzy of, of activity before spring training. We'll have spring training in a season. So, yeah, come back and dunk on me if if we end up, missing games uh next year but for now even though the clock will strike midnight um in a, in a few days let's not panic just yet yeah david for some of the and james 
don't don't date yourself like that, man. But but David, for some of the some of the listeners, our producer Dan Rourke, who who you know weren't around in 1994, just try and put this into perspective for them and how different right now is compared to 1994. Because I think when you throw words around like lockout, strike, sometimes people blend them together. Yeah, they really do. I think that it's a it's a question of leverage, you know, for the players the one leverage spot they have against the owners is postseason play because there's a lot of revenue dollars tied up in the postseason and the big television contracts on the national level. Uh, so that's why in 1994, the players chose to strike on August the 12th before postseason to try to uh, hit a leverage point that would entice the owners to get to the bargaining table, make a deal so that they wouldn't lose that postseason revenue. Well, that year they were prepared for it and they ended up canceling the world series. And that was, and, and a historical uh, collective bargaining agreement that we've never, never seen before and hopefully never see again. Uh, for the owners, this is their leverage point. Uh, they don't really have as much money tied up into the first month of the season as they do in the postseason. So this is lockout territory. When you're in the offseason, you're in lockout territory because the owners have the leverage. If you're in season, that's when the players have the leverage, and particularly towards the end of the season, the one, the one point they have, the one – you know, trick that the players have in their bag is to, to strike before postseason to try to hit the hit the owners where it hurts in that postseason revenue. So, lockout offseason can go a number of different ways. James is exactly right. Uh, the owners are going to try to use everything they can to get a better deal. And part of the problem is, as I said before, is getting the owners to agree amongst themselves. The, the large market and the small markets need to agree on a lot of different issues. Whether that's uh, restrictive measures on the luxury tax side, or whether it's revenue sharing and how much money they're going to share with each other, it can get very complicated. You know, the interesting part to me, you know, is that if you look at the Major League Baseball play, uh, owners, the owners ownership side is a group of individuals and corporations that have made their living off of a free enterprise, a free market. Go out there and beat the brains out of your opponent. I'm a capitalist. But then when they become Major League Baseball owners, it's just the opposite. Oh, we need welfare. We need a we need a reserve clause system. We need revenue sharing. We need restrictions on the market. We need a luxury tax. It's exactly the opposite of how they made their fortunes. Exactly the opposite. So something happens when they become Major League Baseball owners that say, oh, no, no, we can't control ourselves. Uh, we need we need a luxury tax. We need a salary cap. We need restrictions because, uh, you know, we don't know how to run our business as well as the major league baseball owners as we did when we made our fortunes in our real business. So I've always found that ironic that they kind of, uh, they put on a different hat, major league baseball owners when they're, when they're trying to negotiate a collective bargaining agreement. Preach. Yeah, I think we just may have received a cut from the bargaining table from the nineties with, uh, with David and maybe some of the others on the uh, players association uh, executive subcommittee there. Uh, one so one team, and this guy's kind of ties up to three up, three down for me, one small market team acting like a big market team with a big market move recently were, were the Rays. And I got to tip my cap off to, to the Rays and locking up Wander Franco long-term. Uh, 11 years reportedly worth $182 million, can creep up to nearly uh, $225 million with options, with incentives. And I just thought that this was a meticulously done contract by the Rays, their front office. And I, I obviously it's generational money for a guy like Wander Franco. If he stays on the track he's on, I think it'll prove to be a, a fantastic deal for the team. It's heavily backloaded starting around 
2027, 2028, when the, when the Rays figure to be in a, a different stadium situation and, and the revenues will increase. So I, I don't think he's going to be a Ray for the entirety of the deal just based on their history. But even if he isn't, I think the deal itself would probably net the Rays the assets needed to, to refuel the machine that they have in, in St. Petersburg, kind of refuel from a, from a prospect standpoint and keep that wheel going, that wheel spinning. So I think it was just a great move for everyone involved, something that we're not accustomed to seeing a team like the Rays do. But in many ways, it was kind of necessary for a talent like Wanda Franco. It's, it's an interesting point, right? A lot of different ways to slice it and dice it for Wanda Franco. It's, it's a life-changing event, right? He can help his family out. It's, it's an enormous amount of money. I certainly understand it. From the Rays standpoint, if Wander Franco is who they think he is over the 12 years of this contract, they probably paid 50 cents on the dollar. Probably got him for 50 cents on the dollar compared to what he's probably going to produce based on projections. Now, that's obviously a lot of caveats, staying healthy. A lot of things can can go either way in that long term of a deal. But you're talking about somebody that's almost a teenager still. (laughs) I mean, this guy's 20 years old. He's got a heck of a lot of talent. Don't think the Rays aren't doing this because they think they're saving a lot of money, locking up a generational talent. Uh, you know, as I said, by my estimates, they, they got a deal for 50 cents on the dollar for Wander Franco. He got life-changing money for his family. So it's, it's understandable on, on both sides of it. Yeah, he can't consume alcohol yet, but he will be buying the team dinners for sure. Got the deepest pocket now in, uh, in that Rays clubhouse. Guys, this was a lot of fun. Great time talking with Corbin Burns. We, we thank him for, for coming on here. And, and just a reminder, we come at you with new episodes every Tuesday. And please be sure to rate, review, subscribe, so we can keep it going here. And, and thank you to our, our great producer, Dan Rourke. Uh, David, James, great time as always. We may get a lockout, but hey, the pitching talk will never sleep here on, on Toe in the Slab. Absolutely. We've got a few... Uh tricks up our sleeve too. some blasts from the past here and there some friends of mine from the past that i'm going to ask to come on the podcast along with new school i loved our last two episodes with the with the cyan award winners robbie ray and uh, corbin burns uh, very interesting guys they've both been through a lot uh, corbin burns uh, you know i love this interview he was really insightful really shared a lot about his mindset uh, i love it love pitching love talking to these guys love seeing guys have success and how they go about it Thanks again to you guys for listening. Again, Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn is a production of John Boy Media. We'll talk to you next week, everybody.